This episode is brought to you by Videoblocks. Go to videoblocks.com slash nofilmschool to get all the stock video you can imagine for only $149 a year. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Charles Hain. It's September 28th, 2017, and on this week's show, what does the band Radiohead have to do with one of the most important issues in filmmaking? Plus, a big fat debacle in the Alamo Drafthouse family, and the first footage from Sony's full-frame Venice. And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Starting with our very own website. Sometimes, news is initiated right here, and earlier this week, we posted a behind-the-scenes interview about the making of Radiohead's latest video for Man of War. The video's a very cleverly produced story of a man being chased that would be a wonner, except that it meticulously cuts back and forth between night and day versions of the same shots. Director Colin Reed told us in detail how it was shot in only two days, including some serious hustling that had him location scouting himself and landing in the hospital from dehydration. We actually got several comments and emails from people who were concerned about the safety on set after reading the interview, especially because the video ends with a confrontation on train tracks, which reminded readers of the death of Sarah Jones, an AC who was killed by a moving train on an indie film set a few years back when producers hadn't properly coordinated with the train company. So first of all, I want to commend the No Film School community for bringing this up. Part of the reason we're all here is to look out for each other in this tough industry. Uh, And so kudos to you all. And I did reach out to Colin Reed, the director, who let us know that although he did initially scout locations himself, his team also did get the proper permits for all the locations in the video. And also, the train tracks are not actually live. According to Reed, on either end of the blocks of rails that you see in the video, there are gated, locked fences that shut in that stretch of tracks. And the fencing is unlocked and open only at certain times to move in and out freight for storage. Now, one of the emails we got elaborated on some of these concerns beyond the train tracks. Dave Kamides, a Steadicam op from Local 600 Cinematographers Guild, wrote to say that he felt our post was celebrating recklessness on set, adding, quote, Safety is the responsibility of every crew member, and we all need to look out for each other. Having said that, crew leaders like directors, producers, ADs, and DPs have an added responsibility to set the tone of the set. If they're acting recklessly, not only will others follow but those who are aware may be afraid to speak up. So doing our part, we're going to start running some posts with info from Local 600 for safety in situations like free driving, like where the camera op is handheld and the actor is driving. And also remember that you can always go to safetyforsarah.com or the Safety for Sarah Facebook page to learn more about proper on-set safety. But this is also an opportune moment to bring up another pretty dramatic set safety story that's been circulating for the past couple weeks. And this one's a good reminder that when we're talking about safety and responsibility, we're talking about every part of production and not just what happens while filming. So you may have heard that experienced Mexican location scout Carlos Munoz Portal was shot to death in central Mexico Monday while scouting for season four of Netflix's hit show Narcos. He was only 37 years old. This season, the show was shifting its focus from the Colombian drug business to the beginnings of notorious drug cartels of Juarez, Mexico, and thus Portal was scouting near the borders of Hidalgo State, which reportedly has one of the highest murder rates in Mexico. Both his car and his body were found full of bullets. This is so grim to even say aloud, 
but it couldn't be more important, especially when speaking to an audience full of filmmakers. I cannot stress enough the importance of not putting your cast and crew in life-threatening situations. Your movie is not worth someone's life. Yesterday, Narcos star Pedro Pascal came out and said as much publicly, insisting that he would rather have the series shut down if the safety of cast and crew can't be guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, this is terrifying and really sad. So I've heard some weird discussions about this being like, well, you know, Mexico's like really dangerous and he should have been more careful, which like is bullshit. There are safe parts of Mexico the same way there are unsafe and safe parts of America. And I think one of the things that might have happened here is like home team delusion. Like he is he works out of Mexico City. And I think oftentimes when you're scouting near your home base, it is easy to forget that. There are dangerous situations. I feel like people are much more careful the further they are away from home. And I know, like, I've done some shoots in Appalachia where I wandered around and I went up some dirt roads and then I got back to base camp and the local contact found out where I'd been. And he was like, my God, you're lucky you didn't get shot. Stand your ground laws mean a lot around here. So this is something to be conscious of, not for, like, any specific region in the world. Like, Mexico is not inherently more dangerous than anywhere else. But areas in every country are dangerous And don't forget, even if you're near your home base, safety changes quite a lot, often block to block, mile to mile, county to county. Um, It's a really sad thing, the loss of Mr. Uh, Munoz Portal, and uh, good luck staying safe out there on set. On a lighter note, dehydration is often publicist slang for partying too hard. So do we think... Colin Reader was just partying too hard while he was scouting, or he actually got dehydrated? It's funny you said that. I'm not sure we should include this. But, <laughs> no, he, he actually was really adamant about that. They had these, like, two 12-hour days in 100-degree heat, and he just wanted to make sure that we knew that that was, like, his poor choice, that his producers actually had plenty of crafty and plenty of water on set, and he just... He didn't behave responsibly for himself. So it was that moment where you're so focused you literally forget to drink water. That's what he says. There was water. I mean, we've all been there where you look up and you're like, when did I last have – and then you fall over. So everybody, remind each other to drink water on set. And just to wrap up, our condolences go out to Mr. Portal's family and friends. Finally in this week's headlines, here's a gross, icky, no good, upsetting story that I really wish I did not have to report on. But that's exactly why I should. This one's also been circulating for a couple weeks and has even reached mainstream press, so you may know something about it already. And the it I'm referring to is the whole sexual assault mess revolving around two different men involved in the Alamo Drafthouse Fantastic Fest birth movies death universe. So it's a little confusing, but I'll try to report it clearly. The former editor-in-chief of the Alamo Drafthouse film website Birth Movies Death is a guy called Devin Faraci. He was publicly fired last October after he was accused of sexual assault. Then, last week, some astute readers noticed that Farachi was credited on some writing for the Fantastic Fest program, which is also run by Alamo. Alamo founder Tim League admitted on Facebook to quietly rehiring him, claiming that Farachi had been struggling with substance abuse, was in recovery, and is taking steps to make amends. Now, this second chance given by League was revoked soon thereafter, when even more women came out and it was revealed by the Daily Beast that Farachi, quote, had a long history of predatory behavior. Now, no sooner was Farachi really fired for good than another creepily similar scandal popped up this week. 
a slew of sexual assault accusations, some of which are downright disgusting, were raised against another Alamo affiliate, Harry Knowles, who founded Fantastic Fest with Alamo's Tim League in 2005. Apparently, League had been aware of some of these allegations for almost two decades and had basically done nothing about it. This year, neither Knowles nor League are attending Fantastic Fest, which is going on as we speak. According to IndieWire, who first broke the story, League is spending the time traveling to all of the Alamo theaters around the country to talk with the staff and listen to them in order to better respond to allegations of sexual assault and harassment. And he says the company will, quote, take actions so those who work at the theater or attend as guests are not made to feel unsafe. The company's already started to build a new board of directors and has completely cut all ties with Harry Knowles. So if you listen to our show regularly, you know that we're fans of Tim League and everything he does to support indie film. So we hope he does act on these promises and shows leadership in this area. And men in the film business and everywhere else, all I can say is just get it together already. This behavior will not stand. Right, men of no film school? I can't believe we even have to say it in 2017. It's, it's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Sure. No no booby grabbing unless they want you to grab their boobies. Right? You heard it here. <laughs> Clearly, I don't deal with these things very often myself. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. And moving on to gear news. All right. So the biggest camera and tech news that I kind of can't believe we already haven't covered here on the podcast is Venice. The new camera from Sony that lacks a definite article like Concord. <laughs> uh, we covered the launch on a, on the blog, but we haven't really talked about it in the podcast. But now's a great time to talk about it since they've just released the first footage publicly available, a short film called The Dig, shot by Claudio Miranda and starring two very good-looking people playing the best-looking janitors in all of Los Angeles. Although I guess Los Angeles has a lot of good-looking people, so it probably has very good-looking janitorial technicians as well. Uh, it is Tim Riggins and Lily Collins, and I know Tim Riggins has another name, but I don't remember what it is. So, I'm going to admit it. The footage looks really good. I am not traditionally the world's biggest Sony fan, though I do really love the autofocus in the A9 and the low light in the A7, and I love what J- David Lynch has done with the PD-150. But the F900 always looked kind of plastic to me, and the cinema cameras that first came out had like a strange color in the skin tones I never really got used to. Venice, however, just looks gangbusters in the new short, The Dig. Um, And obviously some of that's Claudia Miranda, some of that's the colorist Dave Soa, but the camera is part of that recipe. And I've seen other stuff Claudia Miranda shot on the Sony that still looked kind of Sony-y to me. And this doesn't look Sony-y at all. It just looks great. And maybe in the future, looking great will be what we think of when we say Sony-like. It's got a big full-frame sensor. They shot on full-frame anamorphic lenses. It's all been designed up from scratch. And I'm really looking forward to seeing a whole bunch of new stuff from Venice. Uh, Maybe we'll even get one to play with here at No Film School. So here's just a question. You know, how much would the Venice uh, go for? This isn't something that people will be buying, right? This is a camera. This is a rental camera. The price point, oh, God, I don't remember it. The price point of the body is 20 to 30. Yeah. And it'll always be like body. And then anything big like this, it's like professional batteries. So instead of 300 a battery, it's 1,000 a battery. And, you know, it, it starts to add up quite quickly. The total package is equivalent to Alexa or 
red. It'll be a little less than Alexa, but you're looking 40 to 50 to put together a package. Cool. Next up in the gear we mostly can't afford category is the new Ingenue Optimo Ultra 12X, which has an innovative solution to the unpredictability of future camera sensors. So Ingenue has created IRO, or Interchangeable Rear Optics, to allow users to adapt lenses not just to different lens mounts, but by changing the rear optical element to different sensor sizes. As sensor sizes keep changing, they keep getting bigger. We went from uh, two-thirds of an inch digital sensors to Super 35 to full frame. I think we're going to see some bigger than full frame in the next couple of years. Uh, This lens is going to be able to adapt to cover those bigger sensors, which is pretty cool. That's really smart. It's awesome. Now, with a price point of (laughs) $70,000, it's not (laughs) something uh, any of us are going to be buying anytime soon. But if you're a really busy production company or you're a rental house interested in a high-quality zoom that's not going to become obsolete in three or four years, this is uh, an interesting technological development that we should all be psyched about. Last up is a final bit of IBC news, a 100 to 400 millimeter zoom from Tamron. So this is more of like a still photo zoom. It's autofocus ready with infinite focus rotation. But it's exciting for filmmakers because Tamron has a history of making really great lenses from very affordable prices. And a really long zoom is usually a a pretty pricey investment. Um, Entering this field, which is largely dominated by the long Canon L-series zooms, which cost a pretty penny, is a huge relief. And it's going to mean a lot of filmmakers, especially nature and doc filmmakers, are probably going to be able to afford to keep permanently in their kit a longer zoom lens as opposed to renting it to day play, which is what most of us usually do with those big old Canons. Um, Take a look. Thanks, Charles. And we will have you back right after this commercial break for an Ask No Film School question. We've all been there. You're on deadline for a project and you need some footage that you just don't have. You're faced with using something not quite right or cutting a segment altogether because high quality stock footage is way too expensive or hard to come by. Well, thankfully, those days may be over because now you can get studio quality stock plus After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and sound effects for a fraction of the cost from the Videoblocks member library. Plus, get exclusive discounts on millions of additional marketplace clips where you save 40% and you're supporting other filmmakers too because the original artists take home 100% of the sale price of Marketplace Clips. All the content is royalty-free, so you can use it for commercial and personal projects. And new clips are added regularly, so there's always something fresh to download. Go to videoblocks.com slash nofilmschool to get all the stock footage you can imagine for only $149 a year. That's videoblocks, V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash nofilmschool to save on millions of studio quality clips from Videoblocks. And we're back this week on Ask No Film School. Mervin James, I like your name. And, we, and we've had a question from you before, I think, Mervin. Maybe. That might have been Merlin. Oh, Merlin asks a lot of questions. Yes, Merlin, the, the great wizard of Camelot. <laughs> Anyways, Mervin. Mervin James asks, what can you do with 8K that you can't do in 6 and 4K? And uh, Charles, I think this is something that we've talked about before on the podcast, but what do you think? So I think that 8K at this point is still largely marketing hype and kind of bullshit. And most of the content you watch is going to be 1080 or 4K. But there are some benefits of the new 8K Reds that I like, 
I just don't think 8K is the benefit of them. So you'll hear people say things like, the sensor has twice as many pixels as the previous sensor. So of course, the images are going to be amazing, which is like gibberish. Like, does that mean if you went from like 16K to 32K, the images would get more like amazing or 100K? Like there's a point where doubling the number of pixels doesn't make the image more amazing. There's so many other things like latitude and color science and low light sensitivity that make an image more amazing. So just hearing twice as many pixels, that math doesn't always equal more quality. Like, for instance, no one has ever said, this shoe has twice as many shoelaces as your other shoes, so it's going to be great. It's like, well, what if one shoelace is enough and I don't need to? And we might be at that point with 4K and 6K where that's enough pixels. Um, so if you watch this great video uh, we covered from Steve Yedlin a few weeks ago, he makes a really strong case that it's hard to tell the difference between 1080p and 4K in the final display most consumers watch. Um, I work regularly on a 20-foot screen that has a 4K mode, but I almost always work in 1080 mode, and there's almost no artifacts. I have to really stress contrast charts to start to see the difference between 1080 and 4K, and that's on a 20-foot screen. So, of course, that's just referring to output. That's just referring to your final delivery. And capture is a whole other animal. 8K Capture offers like, ooh, I can do more reframing and all sorts of stuff like that, which a lot of people love. A lot of DPs don't like you to reframe, but a lot of directors love that. However, 8K pixels, if you're using the same sensor size, means more pixels in, a, in the same space, which means each individual photo site needs to be smaller. And smaller photo sites are sometimes not as good at low light sensitivity, and there's some other drawbacks there. However, I recently did a side-by-side -side test of the 8K RED and the 6K RED, and that 8K RED, even though it's a smaller Super 35 sensor as opposed to the full-frame sensor of the 6K, is more sensitive. It's like maybe a stop more sensitive, which is going to give you really nice low-light performance. And even though it has smaller photo sites, technology keeps improving, sensors keep improving, and the sensor is a big step forward even with those tiny photo sites, which is super cool. However, we were only looking at that final result in 4K. We never looked at the result in 8K because I don't have a lot of 8K screening options. One interesting thing that we did notice, though, is that if you put that 8K camera, the new Helium, in 6K mode, it looked worse than the 6K footage from the 6K camera because you're going to such a small part of that tiny little Super 35 sensor. So like the Vaunted, you get all this reframing room. Well you don't actually have as much reframing room as you think. You can't go all the way down to half res or quarter res. I would consider the new red an improvement, but I don't think the 8K is the improvement. I think that's just like an easier number for them to market. I think the improvements are better low light and better uh, color reproduction and wider latitude, and that's all cool. So I think you should look at the 8K red if you're thinking about it, but I also think you should look at the Vericam, which has a 5,000 ISO native, uh, sensor and uh, the Alexa. Both of them only output 4K, and the Alexa is actually 3.5K that it upreses, but they're going to give you amazing imagery as well. And I don't think the K's is the important part to focus on. And remember that, you know, most content is still delivered 1080 or Ultra HD, and uh, that's what you should be worried about creating good images in. And the new Helium is a way to do that, but the K might not be the, the most important part.
So can I ask a question, like brass tacks? Mervyn's question straight up is just, what can you do in 8K that you can't do in 6K and 4K? So is the answer just basically nothing? I'm assuming he's talking about, because when he asks further questions, it's, it's about the red, 8K. And the idea is that 8K gives you more reframing room. So you can zoom in to it further without seeing artifacts. So if you need to stabilize or if you want to get a close-up out of a wide shot, the idea is you would get more out of 8K. But that's also the benefit of 6K and 4K. Well, except not if you're finishing 4K. If you're finishing 4K, you can't punch in on 4K. Got it. And the truth of the matter is, even with that 8K, if you're finishing to 4K, you still can't push in a ton. Because the way the sensor is built, you will see some artifacts. Um, so the push-in benefit isn't really the thing. Um, I guess I was trying to answer in a generous way to Red. Like, if I if I look exactly at Mervyn's question, what can I do at 8K that I can't do at 6K? With the cameras Red makes right now, nothing. But the 8K camera they make, the Helium, has better low-light sensitivity and nicer colors than the 6K camera. So in generosity to Red, there are things that camera gives you that the 6K doesn't. But the K is not what gives it to you. Thank you for clarifying, Charles, and for your answer. And Mervin, thanks for your question. Let us know what you decide to do. We'll be back next week with more questions from Merlin. <laughs> who I'm surprised really has any questions at all, being that he's such a prescient, you know, sorcerer. Or maybe he's got questions about how the knights treat the woman in Camelot and if that constitutes as sexual harassment or not. Yeah, I mean, is Lancelot... An abuser? Yeah. Poor Guinevere. I don't know. Does he use his lance a lot? There you go. Okay. And now on to some movies opening this week. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out Song to Song on October 2nd. Terrence Malick fans, but I don't think many others will rejoice to hear that his latest film will be hitting Amazon this week. This is, as I said, song to song. And I say it's not many people's cup of tea because the reception to the film was sort of less than kind when it premiered at South by Southwest earlier this year. Now, that's not the fault of a star-studded cast that includes Michael Fassbender, Natalie Portman, Rooney Mara, Ryan Gosling, and Kate Blanchett. That's a crazy cast. In fact, the film also features some big-name musicians like Iggy Pop, Patti Smith, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And you'd think that South by Southwest would be the perfect place to, you know, premiere this thing because it actually takes place in Austin, Texas and is heavily involved in the music scene. So I can't really say I know why this film got panned, but it seems like it's following a trend of uh, the beloved filmmaker's most recent movies. Song to Song consists of two intersecting love triangles and the obsession and betrayal that run through them as I said, set against the music scene in Austin, Texas. So if you want to check it out, if you think Malk can do no wrong, you can go to Amazon Prime Instant on October 2nd and watch it. I almost wonder if it didn't do well because it was so close to home, like people had such high expectations and they actually know the people that are supposed to be portrayed in the movie, so it was like disappointing in that way. Yeah, I honestly like didn't even hear very much about it when I was at South by Southwest. Like People, it was so... Uh, undeserving of people's attention there, which is surprising and a little bit sad, but um, also speaks to the testament of the festival itself because, you know, people are there to check out sort of the mi the more minor works and the, the, the fresh and exciting new faces. So let's hope Malik can rebound. Uh, Knight of Cups got 
similar sort of a reception. And uh, I think that these two are, are pretty similar in themes. Yeah, come on back, Terry. We're here for you. Meanwhile, coming to Netflix on October 4th is a movie you all will have to see for me because I sure as hell will not see it. Didn't you see it? Hell no. This sounds like the scariest movie ever. This is like an Emily Booter nine-finger rating. Yeah, I thought you and Emily went together and saw this at TIFF. F no. No, that was the other movie about cannibalism. Okay, let me catch you all up on what we're talking about. This movie is called Raw. It was one of the most talked about indie films from 2016, and it's finally hitting streaming again on October 4th on Netflix. It famously had people passing out in theaters at festivals like TIFF due to its graphic content. And now you can faint in the comfort of your own home. Spoiler alert, it's about cannibalism. So if you're not into that kind of stuff, then stay and maybe think twice before picking this one to watch. Now, what John is referring to is that Emily and I last year saw Bad Batch, which also recently came to Netflix, and that was another movie featuring cannibalism. But Raw is a straight-up horror movie, and that was more of a just, like, weirdo movie. Well, Raw has also gotten better, like, critical acclaim than Bad Batch did, too. So two cannibalism movies. This one seems like the one to watch. If you can deal with horror, which is, like, not for me, as you can tell. But in this case, Ra is about a young vegetarian who undergoes a carnivorous hazing ritual at veterinary school and an unbidden taste for meat begins to grow in her. Unlike Bad Batch, this film was actually really celebrated. In fact, director Julia DeCarnow won the Director's Fortnite Award at Cannes for her efforts and took home the top prize at Fantastic Fest last year. And maybe that's just because there are a ton of perverted, horny men who wanted to see a young woman eat the flesh of another human being. But, you know what, I still have faith in Fantastic Fest. I really want to go someday. And finally, on HBO, the season finale of Room 104 is this Sunday. This is the Duplass Brothers short film-centric HBO series, and it's set in a single room of an average American motel, but each episode tells a different story of the assorted characters who pass through it. If you haven't seen it yet, now's your chance to catch up. The series uses its anthology structure to its advantage, telling short, eclectic stories that hit their marks more often than they miss. So this is also definitely a project that indie filmmakers should check out because it truly embodies Mark Duplass's low-budget filmmaking mantra of can I take big creative risks for no money? And I'm sure HBO appreciated that a lot. But, you know, it's it's one location, um, many different stories, a very creative series, and... uh, Hopefully it'll be back for some sort of second season. And finally, on Friday, Lucky is coming to theaters. So this was another film that I saw down at, well, I didn't see Song to Song, but this was a film I did see at South by Southwest last year, uh, earlier this year, I guess. And uh, ultimately, what drew me to want to see the film was the fact that it starred Harry Dean Stanton. He's always been one of my favorite actors, and to hear that he was playing a lead in a film at the age of 90 was fucking mind-blowing to me. I was supposed to sit down with Stanton and John Carroll Lynch for an interview in Austin a few days after I saw it, but I was told shortly before the interview that Stanton wasn't well enough to make the festival. Of course, this film takes on an entirely new meaning now that Stanton has passed away. The character of Lucky was literally modeled after Stanton's own life. Lynch revealed to me that certain character quirks of the 90-year-old atheist that Stanton played were in reality just Stanton being Stanton. The film follows the spiritual journey of a 90-year-old man named Lucky, who, after a fall, becomes increasingly aware of the fact that he's about to die, and makes some drastic life changes within his rural Texas town because of it. 
Stanton was truly incredible in this. It wasn't possible for me to tell that this would be his final film. He seems spry and full of life. Uh, he's, I mean, the guy just has a face that is engaging to just look at, which makes, you know, his passing this year all the more hard and uh, terrible. If that's not enough to entice you into checking out this surreal slice-of-life film, there's the added bonus of David Lynch who acts in it as well. Lynch plays a millionaire who's lost his tortoise, and Stanton teams up to help him find it. I highly recommend listening to the podcast I recorded with director John Carroll Lynch, who is himself an incredible character actor in his own right. This was his first film, and he goes all into detail about what it was like working with Stanton, directing Lynch, and has more great insight on being a first-time director. And now we've got some grant and opportunity deadlines for you guys. On September 30th is the European Short Pitch deadline. This opportunity is presented by the European Network of Young Cinema, and it's a pitch session that offers an international short film screenwriter between 18 and 35, a scriptwriting residency workshop, and a co-production forum. This forum brings together scriptwriters, directors, and industry pros from all over Europe. Selected on the basis of their short film projects, 16 European talents gather to discuss, rewrite, and learn to promote their stories on a European level with the support of four tutors. Eventually, they pitch their projects in front of a panel of over 55 producers, financiers, buyers, and distributors. And on October 2nd, the deadline for the Film Independent Documentary Lab goes by... Ten documentaries at the rough cut stage are chosen for Film Independence Mentorship Program. That includes exposure to industry professionals, a pass to the L.A. Film Festival, and year-round mentorship. Some lucky lab attendees will also walk away with around $25,000 in finishing funds. So through a series of meetings and workshops, the Doc Lab provides creative feedback and story notes to participating filmmakers while helping them to strategize for the completion, distribution, and marketing of their films. And the following day, October 3rd, is the deadline for a new initiative from SF Film called Women, Peace, and Security Fellowship. Thanks to a grant from the Compton Foundation, this gives $25,000 to two filmmakers from either the documentary or narrative persuasion who are telling their stories of women's efforts to end conflict and advance peace. In addition to financial support, SF Film will provide fellows with connections to advisors with expertise in the subject matter of their film, networking opportunities, and active support from SF film staff and mentors within the Bay Area creative community. And this is cool because it's not only open to women. So, men, you can make a movie about a woman being strong if you want to. Women, you can do that too, if you'd like. (laughs) Imagine that. And now onto the festival deadlines. The Cleveland International Film Festival has their regular deadline on September 30th. It's been running for 41 years, and it's held annually by the Cleveland Film Society. It's been recognized as one of the 50 leading film festivals in the world by IndieWire, as well as being the USA Today runner-up for Best Film Festival in the country. They accept web series and new media content for free of charge, which is pretty awesome if you have any of that sort of content. Bad word, but what are you going to do? I'm content with it. Nice. There's tons of great cash prizes, including the Roxanne T. Mueller Award for Best Feature Film, which is $15,000. It's a lot. The Real Woman Direct Award, this one for women only, which has a $10,000 prize. And then the Central and Eastern European Competition for Narrative Feature, which also has a $10,000 prize. So check out the site to see all the prizes and categories that they have because they're extensive and they cover a lot of ground. We love it when festivals award filmmakers for their hard work. 
And the early bird deadline for the Athens International Film and Video Festival is October 1st. This one takes place in April in Athens, Ohio. Oh my gosh, I thought it was going to be Athens, Greece, and I was really excited about it. I thought it was Athens, Georgia when I wrote it. Mm, either one may or may not be more interesting than Athens, Ohio. Get I'll, your I'll... shit together, person that <laughs> names places. Stop naming so many goddamn places Athens. Maybe Athens, Ohio is like secretly super awesome. Let's assume it is because this festival is in its 45th year running and it's an Academy Award qualifying festival in the short narrative and animated short categories. Plus, it has $1,000 cash prizes. And finally, the River Run International Film Festival has a deadline on October 1st. This takes place April 19th through the 29th, 2018 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Each spring, River Run screens new narrative, documentary, student, and animated films of all lengths from established and emerging filmmakers around the world. It has cash prices and is an Academy Award qualifying festival for doc and animated shorts. It's really important to, like, look at what type of shorts these festivals uh, provide you with Academy Award qualifying sort of certification for. Uh yeah, just like in doing this every week, a lot of these places will say, you know, we're Academy Award qualifying, but you don't know what, uh, you know, block that uh, corresponds to. So be sure and check it out. Yeah, because you wouldn't want to find yourself in Athens, Ohio for no reason. Maybe you would. Yeah. And now for whoa, 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 Weekly Words of Wisdom. I'll go first. Our writer Dylan Dempsey did a really great post from IFP Film Week called Six Filmmaking Survival Tips from Five Rising Stars of Indie Films. This was based on a panel where several filmmakers from this past year's festival circuit shared advice from their personal journeys. It's both practical and insightful, and I really appreciated some of the wise words about not beating yourself up too much during the long and sometimes painful creative process. Specifically, Ingrid Youngerman, director of Women Who Kill, said... It takes many, many years of just doing the best you can and sticking with it. But don't let the money panic you. Just try to imagine your worst case financial scenario. And if you can handle that, then you push through. There are major ups and downs. You're always afraid you're not doing enough. When you're in those, quote, down phases, you have to remember that you've done good work before. You'll do good work again. Be patient with yourself. Even if you've accomplished nothing, wasted the whole day just checking your phone, Know that you can move on. Tomorrow is a new day. Man, she has been uh, on the press circuit with this movie for like three years, I feel like. So uh, she's making the best use of her time in her future, which is uh, good for her. I thought that too, because you and I have both covered her at various times yeah, during the... like several festivals. She was on a panel that I did, that I went to last June, um, where she talked with like Jeremy Saulnier and... Uh, Ted Towey, the guy who wrote uh, Silence of the Lambs. It was one of my favorite panels I've ever been to. And yeah, she was on that talking about the same movie. Yeah, I interviewed her at Tribeca, not this year, but last year about the film. But you know what? Good for you, Ingrid. I like the way you work it. So my words of wisdom come from a uh, <laughs> pretty fanboyish interview I got the chance to do uh, last week, at the end of last week, with Gil Ozeri and John Daly. Um, who aren't exactly household names, but they're some of the like funniest cult uh, comedians out there today. Uh, both of their work can be seen like on a lot of Adult Swim shows, Comedy Bang Bang stuff. Uh, they were really—I was kind of scared to talk to them because they're kind of ruthless 
uh, in their improvisation skills. So I thought I wasn't going to be able to keep up, but they were very nice, very well-spoken and articulate. Um, and I thought I'd just share something that John Daly said about how the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, in New York City helped him to become the artist that he is today. Uh, they have a new short out on Super Deluxe called Men. Uh, and this article that I wrote just went out yesterday. So you should check it out. Um, check out the short. It's really <laughs> bizarre. And UCB, for anyone who doesn't know, is a sort of improv school in both L.A. and New York. It was started by Amy Poehler a long time ago. And nowadays it's hugely popular uh, for actors in New York City who have either left college and don't know what to do or who uh, have moved to New York and aren't going to school uh, and sort of opt to go this improv route instead. So for Daly, the kind of education that uh, UCB provided him is best up, summed up in this quote. He said, we were blessed to be able to go on stage with new characters, fail, and then just kind of keep doing it. Keep coming up with characters, keep trying them out, keep honing them and making them more defined and more specific. Keep embarrassing ourselves at late night shows in New York that were often times pretty well attended. So I don't know. I think that is applicable to everyone you know they're lucky because they had the chance to go up on stage and fail every night so they became more comfortable with failure um and also in effect became more comfortable taking risks which is something that i think you know filmmakers can certainly learn from if they just want to make their own sort of short stuff put it out in the world fail and move on to the next one that's nice folks i like that our two pieces of advice kind of go together unintentionally and also, we embarrass ourselves on the show every week, and you all seem to keep listening, so cool, I guess it works. Finally, a shout-out to the 55th New York Film Festival, which opens tonight at the Film Society of Lincoln Center with Richard Linklater's first attempt at a war movie. It's called Last Flag Flying, and it'll also open theatrically in November. John's going to go to a big master class with Linklater, so we'll get that up on the site, and we're going to have lots of coverage from the festival which runs until October 15th, up on the site over the next couple weeks, so keep checking back at nofilmschool.com. And until next Thursday's show, you can check out our interview podcast on Monday. Next Monday, I've got part two of this week's Dispatch from the Camden International Film Festival, which was a very useful episode where industry experts told us how to successfully pitch our projects. So next Monday, we'll feature three guests from the other side of the table, filmmakers who've done successful pitches at places like Camden, and now their films are out in the world. These are some of the lucky few who've been through the somewhat mysterious labs and fellowships at places like Camden and Sundance. And on the episode, we're going to talk a lot about what those things even are, what happens at them, and why you might want to consider applying. So check that out on Monday. Meanwhile, please, please uh, subscribe to the No Film School podcast if you haven't yet done so. You can do that on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. But while you're at iTunes, why don't you just rate us with those five glorious gold stars? And as always, we'll have a podcast post up with links to everything we talked about in this episode. And you can find tons more articles and interviews about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Meanwhile, stay in touch. I am at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm Jim underscore John underscore Jim. J, 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 J. And we are at No Film School. See you next Thursday. <laughs> <laughs>